Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It is great to be back, Paul. Our guest on the show this week, it's a real privilege uh, to have on the show Su Lin Ong, who's Managing Director, Chief Economist and Head of Australian Research at RBC Capital Markets here in Australia. Su Lin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, look, I imagine it's been a busy week. Uh, markets are, are moving around. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but uh, also you put out a, a very interesting and somewhat provocative note on tax policy, um, so um, which we're also going to discuss on the show. But I imagine the phone's been running hot this week. Yeah, there's been a lot going on. We've seen um, heightened volatility across all asset markets really um, this week, um, you know, right around the globe. Um, we've seen big moves in equity markets, um, the weakness continuing. Um, we've seen a very choppy uh, lot of moves in US treasuries. So global bond markets have shifted around a lot as well. Um, currencies have moved and emerging markets remain under pressure. So there's a lot going on. I think what's interesting is that um, we've only had a few bouts of volatility over the course of this year. And it's actually probably surprising we haven't seen more of this in 2018, but it's probably a bit of a sign as we head into year end and, and the new year. It's absolutely the case. You know, we've been talking for a little while uh, now. Um, there's been this narrative building up, particularly with central banks withdrawing um, the easing um, uh, that, um, you know, and um, shrinking the balance sheets a little bit. Everybody's been talking, and it's only been a tiny bit so far. Um, everybody's been talking about, you know, this is likely to lead to more volatility, but it looks like finally it's here uh, and uh, and in a very real way. Absolutely. And I think um, you've probably, you know, really hit the nail on the head. I mean, what's driven this latest bout of volatility is the move in 10-year US Treasuries through three and a quarter percent. It's come off those levels this week, but, you know, we have tested up there. That's a highest level in yield terms in a couple of years. Um, You know, it's very consistent um, as well with the Fed rhetoric that continues to suggest a Fed that not only moves to neutral, um, so a few more hikes, but potentially above neutral. So, um, you know, that's very consistent with the thematic of uh, removal of abundant liquidity. So it's not just the Fed. The Bank of Canada lifted rates again overnight. um, So they've done five hikes in just over 12 months. Um, You know, the UK's uh, it's a little bit slower there, but they're also um, you know lifting I gently. Mean, yeah. ECB has wound back its its program of bond buying this quarter and effectively will exit that completely by year end. And even Japanese yields are heading a little Amazingly higher, which enough. is you know in percentage terms pretty decent move for ten year JGBs. So I think um, the volatility we've seen recently has been triggered by this this backup in US yields, but it's part of that broader thematic uh, removal of liquidity. Um, and what that means for all asset classes. We're going to dive into it, and specifically, we'll start at, on the um, the equities uh, in just a moment. But before we get into it any further, I've got an important announcement. We are doing a live show at the Ivy in Sydney on November the 27th. And we'd love all of our Devils and Details listeners uh, to come along. Not all of you, because we can't fit you all in the room. Um, but we it's obviously look, it'd be great for us to meet you. Um, but also, you'll get a chance to meet some of our esteemed contributors and guests on the show. Um, we've really got a stellar lineup, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. Some of Australia's brightest minds in finance, including Joanne Masters from ANZ, Con Michalaskis from uh, Statewide Super, Laura Fitzsimmons from JP Morgan, James Whelan, who runs 
runs the macro fund at BFS Group. Uh, with property prices being so top of mind, we'll also have Pete Wardgett from Alan Wardgett. We've got Cam Kusher from CoreLogic, Eleanor Cray from Saxo Capital Markets, um, and uh, the rates bear himself, uh, uh, Stephen Kukulis, uh, will also be there. So, um, so uh, I'm just the, I, the one person who's willing to say that uh, the RBA should be cutting rates. Anyway, lots of chat, insights, and wisdom on, on hot topics today. Of course, importantly, drinks and canapes. Tickets are 50 bucks. Everybody's got a 50, hopefully. You can get them on Humanitix. Go on there and search for devils and details or find the link at the top of my Twitter profile. They are selling. There is a limited number. So come along and say hello at November 27th at the Ivy. Getting down to business. It's Thursday afternoon as we're recording. Uh, we just looked at uh, uh, ASX finished down 2.6%, sold into the close. That's when it's getting nasty. The S&P 500 was down 3% overnight. NASDAQ was down 4. Chinese stocks are under multi-year lows, uh, are, are at multi-year lows and looking shaky. And for the last few years, we've been talking about these healthy pullbacks in asset prices. Um, and uh, that's what a lot of these similar, in, similar incidents have looked like up to this point. But to me, this one has a little bit more bite to it, um, particularly given the sort of slight deterioration in the global outlook uh, lately. Um, so, Sulin, the absence of clear catalysts, right, uh, where you can kind of definitively say what's causing it. Um, how do you how do you think about this? Because there's such a, there's a long list of things that might be causing it. There are, but I think the catalysts are pretty clear, really. Um, when you look at the moves, the moves in equity markets to varying degrees around the world's really been over the last few weeks, really, pretty much the last month. And I think it reflects a confluence of factors. So the first one very much is around this backup in uh, US Treasury yields, and that's dragging global yields higher, consistent with that thematic of reduced liquidity. The second one, um, no doubt, is really the, the downward revisions to global growth. And we're seeing that from from, um, you know, a number of high-profile forecasters, but probably best captured by the IMF World Bank's most recent economic outlook, which cut global growth forecasts for both 18 and 19 for the first time in um, in about two years. So, you know, global growth still looks reasonable at three and three-quarter percent, but it's it's the revision and the ma and you know the direction of the revisions, and I think that's significant. It's obviously very much tied up to, um, you know, the the trade rising trade tensions, um, protectionism, what that means overall. Um, and I think, you know, from that perspective, it's not really hard to explain, you know, why equity markets are probably doing what they're doing. The third thing that I wouldn't underestimate is just momentum algo traders and and um, the technicals, they're all really poor and they've all kicked into gear and they've been exacerbated by, I think, the first two factors. So do you think on days like this, like we've seen um, that you know, when you get to the towards the end of the day, that some of this machine driven, um, these mis machine driven asset managers are kind of thinking, well, it's it's half an hour to the close. Um, maybe it's time to sell a bit more. Do you think that's a factor? I think there's an element of that. Absolutely. Um, it also suggests at some point that this will go a little bit too far. But where do you step in? I mean, you know, we would argue that the outlook's still reasonably challenging in that sense. So um, I think that's a bigger question. So the ASX has been really under pressure. Um, uh, entered a technical correction um, today, David. It did. So first time we've seen that since uh, early 2016. And lo and behold, that was when uh, a lot of concerns were revolving around the uh, Chinese economy and likewise again now. So uh, when I last looked, I know, given the other uh, scale of the losses we saw at the end of today's trade, probably looking about 10.5% down over the last 40 trading sessions. So it's been quite a sizable fall. 
and we're now at uh, we're not only negative for the year, we're at uh, I think uh, just over 13 month lows. So. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, and obviously, I know one that probably may have a little bit more to go, uh, given that there's obviously a bit of a prospect of uh, some capitulation selling as well. Some people will probably be hoping for a bounce if that doesn't occur. Um, as we saw today in the uh, the last little bit, there's, uh, there's sometimes the prospect of uh, of people being forced to go and sell. So one of the things I'm fascinated by here, right, is like where the, the, let's talk about where we are in the cycle, right, because. It, on the face of it, the U.S. economy looks in good shape. Um, uh, Europe may be slowing down. There's some mixed signals coming out of there, but kind of looks okay. Japan looks good. Um, you know, there's even you know, like the the Bank of Japan is, um, you know, willing to let those ten-year JGBs you know push up just a little bit. Um, China um, missed its growth, missed market expectations for GDP growth by you know. Uh, 10 basis points, um, but still growing at, you know, uh, at 6.5%, right? Stomping along. Um, From a significantly higher base as well. Exactly, yeah. So how do you think about this, right? So how do you square that with, I think with what's happening? I think the best way markets? to think about it really is that markets are very forward-looking. There's no doubt global growth is decent. It's strong. The hard data is yet to really show the impact of tariffs and protectionism and the rest. Um, but markets are very forward-looking and the concern is that the outlook, particularly for 19 and into 2020, um, is more uncertain and the downside risks are mounting. And that's coming from the combination of, um, you know, the, the, the trade escalation and the risk of more um, higher yields, the removal of liquidity um, and weakness in the EM complex. And I think that's one factor that's quite often underestimated. You know, as global yields rise, US dollars stronger. It's these emerging markets that come under pressure. They were big beneficiaries of um, the abundance of global liquidity, and now that's moving into reverse. So that broader, weaker EM complex, specifically China, um, has quite important implications for Australia, especially. So I think that's really um, the issue here. It's not so much that global growth is weak right now, it's that it's probably peaking, um, less broad-based and synchronised, um, and that's a concern for markets going forward. What do you think the evidence is? So a lot of people talk about where, you know, we're, we're now increasingly people say that we're late cycle. Um, what do you think is the evidence for that? I think that's just really from a historic perspective more than anything else. The US is in its ninth year of expansion. It's the second longest on record. You know, there's there's a sense that, you know, the Fed's tightening, liquidity's coming out at some point this is all going to roll over. Um, I think the US is beating to us its own drum, really. It is strong and I don't think there's any reason why um, the US economy can't continue to grow um, reasonably well, probably above trend next year. Um, you know, we know the, the the corporate and income tax cuts have supercharged that economy. We know the labour market's extraordinarily strong. Household balance sheets are clean and, and they can lever up and, ex and spend if they want. So I think the US is in reasonably good shape here. Um, but it's more, I think, as we get into late 19 and 2020 for the US, where the moderation will probably come. The rest of the world, um, again, like I said, it's the EM complex. And um, that's definitely weaker. That's what's driving some moderation in global growth. Um, and I think um, significant in, in that context is China's absolutely underwhelming in terms of activity. There's no way China's growing at close to the official 6.5%. <laughs> um, if it was, the authorities wouldn't be 
you know, releasing that many policies from its toolkit, and it is a big toolkit and it is an innovative toolkit, but there are a lot of measures being pulled out here and that is a sign of an economy that is underwhelming. So it's really interesting that, you you know, some of the things that you listed off there, you know, the um, tightening liquidity, EM not looking so great, um, you know, rising rates, which has been, you know, if you reverse all of those things, that has been exactly the kind of picture, has been fundamental to the picture, you know, so lots of liquidity, low rates, and very strong performing uh, emerging economies. And that that is all now turning sort of on its head. Um, and uh, we're get, we're, we are where we are, right? So um, what are the indicators that you look at uh, carefully, right? So um, we've been talking a lot about the yield curve uh, on the show. Um, do, you, do you look at that? Are there other indicators that you're watching particularly uh, closely at the moment? In terms of global growth? Yeah, what, what it tells you about where, where things are going in over the next 12, 24 months. Um, look, the yield curve, I think, has its limitations at the moment. Um, it is clearly very flat in the US. It's off its lows, um, but the odds are it is going to remain fairly flat um, as we head into next year. Um, at RBC, we expect the Fed to lift again in December and then deliver another Four hikes in 2019. So it's pretty punchy. It's, um, you know, it's above the dot plot. It's above consensus expectations, but it in part is underpinned by, you know, our view the economy is in reasonably good shape and shouldn't die of old age, really. Have and you been surprised by the strength of the, like, the, 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 the rapid reduction in the unemployment rate? Um, no, no, not really. I mean, you're talking about an economy that's growing at a 4% plus annualised rate, um, where, you know, constraints are starting to come through. Um, the labour market, I think, you know, it captures really the underlying health of that economy. And, you know, I, I think we have to remember that the, the cuts that we saw early this year really have supercharged that economy. And so we're not that surprised. Um, you know, finally, sort of the wager side is picking up a little bit, um, should be stronger, but, but you know, there, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, so no, we're, we're not especially surprised. And the consumer is the driving force of US growth at the moment. Um, and we'll probably remember remain pretty healthy. So look, we expect the Fed to keep tightening here um, more than, than the market expects. That is what keeps our curve pretty, our forecast for the US curve pretty flat. I was going to ask you uh, very quickly, uh, are you concerned, you talked about the tax cuts that have been implemented and obviously that's going to induce the US economy a lot this year. Um, now that's expected to go and start lessening next year. Given where the US fiscal position is, are you concerned about the size of the deficit? Now, they're running a, a quite a sizable deficit now as a percentage of GDP at a time when the economy is absolutely booming. Yeah. Um, when growth presumably and most likely slows down, that's going to go and leave quite a sizable and growing deficit uh, unless you see a lot of uh, productivity growth. So I was just wondering whether that's a concern, like, you know, a longer term thing that you're looking at as a potential you know, grey mm. swan event that could potentially Do you know, there. I think it's already a concern. The markets just haven't really wanted to focus on it. Every now and then, you know, the, the bat long end backs up a bit because they we see, you know, quarterly refunding announcements are higher, supplies, US Treasury supply is, is larger for the quarter. But it hasn't really been a key driver. Um, 
until I think recently. So what's interesting um, in in the last probably couple of weeks is that the curve's actually steepened up a little bit, led by the back end. We've seen a bit of bear steepening here. And I think in part it's, you know, as there's been some discussions as we go into midterms about another potential round of income tax cuts in the US. Now, you're absolutely right. At a time where the budgetary <coughs> position is pretty poor, it's, you know, it's heading to 5% of GDP next year, um, that should be placing some practice pressure on longer dated yields. And so in our world, um, that's what, you know, we think yields go higher right across the board. The front end, get you know, rises as the Fed keeps lifting, the back end comes under pressure um, from the fiscal situation. It does set up the potential further down the track of, of some reasonable slowdown in the US. And that's why there is, you know, it's not our base case view, but there are a lot of investors and clients talking about a US recession in, in 2020. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, we're pretty comfortable over the, the next six to 12 months, but absolutely as that fiscal stimulus fades, if we don't get another round, and that could be hard given the way these midterms are shaping up, um, then that, that could make things a bit more challenging in term. Can I ask you quickly, you mentioned that wages, um, you mentioned briefly that wages had started to pick up. Mm. Um, so your research covers, you know, you cover such a, you publish on such a wide range of different topics. Can I ask, do you have a view on what's been behind the sluggishness in, in wages growth in advanced economies? Yeah, look, this has been, I think, the topic of debate, particularly amongst the central banking community for a lot of the last 12 to 18 months. If you look in particular at G7, all of G7 pretty much has unemployment rates either at or below full employment. Importantly, they also have underemployment rates that have been declining in recent years and are back to pre-crisis levels. So you're talking about very tight labour markets here. And if you put it into historic context, um, you know, the US unemployment rates at about a 40-year low, so is the UK unemployment rate. Um, you know, the Canadian unemployment rates at an all-time low. Um, and like I said, underemployment is low too. So um, it's been a puzzle. At this stage of the cycle, wages should be much higher. Um, so it's clear that there's something going on structurally and there is a laundry list of reasons here. There is not one, I think, that particularly explains it. Um, you know, it, it runs from entrenched low inflationary expectations to automation, globalisation, lack of bargaining power post crisis. It, there's not one factor here, but what we do know is that it absolutely is structural. And so the lesson for Australia, which actually still has slack when you look at our unemployment yeah, rate. Underemployment, uh, still and underemployment. Pretty, pretty high, yeah. yeah, Australian unemployment's 8.3%. The historic high is 9%. I mean, we're barely a percent off the highs. So there's a lot of slack still. Um, so, you know, all those structural factors apply to Australia. Um, the cyclical side does doesn't bode all that well either for a big pickup in wages. And what the lessons we've learned from watching a lot of these global economies is you need a period of below full employment to really get wages growth going. That seems to be the key message here. Do you think, um, do you think that the Nairu, uh, so the RBA has tip, traditionally talked about five. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think, uh, it, it, well, full employment looks like well, now in Australia? we don't know where full employment is until we hit it. You don't yeah, know okay. where Nairu is until you kind of get to See. some number <laughs> and wages start picking up. But there's no doubt globally Nairu has 
been drifting lower right across the developed world. Um, and in Australia, look, I think the Reserve Bank's been pretty open. Um, if you read between the lines, it's uncertain amount, about the amount of slack in, in the Australian economy. It is open to the idea that the Nairu is below 5%. Again, it's a very kind of roundabout way of saying we don't really know where it is. Um, it, we'll know when we hit it, when wages growth starts to pick up a little bit. And right now, there's not a huge amount of signs that, that that's happening. I think we will get a little bit of a lift in wages growth here in the near term because we've got a minimum wage increase that comes through that'll help. And look, we could get wages growth up to closer to two and a half, but the risk is it kind of slides a bit to about two and a quarter after that. Okay, we're going to get in and talk uh, now in a moment about um, some further uh, issues in the Australian domestic picture. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with David Scott, and our guest this week is Su Lin Ong, Managing Director at RBC Capital Markets here in Australia. So, uh, Su Lin, a um, whole bunch of things going on in the domestic economy. So, we've talked about this changing picture in uh, at the global level, uh, and Australia's exposure, obviously, to some of that, you know, the sort of mid-sized trade-exposed uh, uh, economy. Um, but there are a whole bunch of really interesting things going on domestically, um, chiefly, um, well, at least the part that everybody talks about, the property prices. Um, so uh, how concerned are you? Look, um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate going on around property prices in Australia. So I think it's important to put it into context, really. So at a national level, property prices have increased, you know, to their peak of late last year, almost 50, 55% over about five or six years. The run-up's been larger in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, closer to 80, 90, 80, 70% respectively. So Deep we've breath, seen yeah. some very big gains um, over the last five or six years. What is very clear is since late last year, um, house prices have started to ease. Um, and if you look at the data, um, you know, we're probably about, uh, call it maybe 5% off the peak. Um, and year on year rates nationally are running now in negative territory, about minus 3%, a little bit more for Sydney. Sydney's clearly leading the way here. Melbourne's starting to catch up a little bit. So Yes, we haven't seen declines in house prices in Australia for a very long time. Probably most people don't even remember what that looks like. <laughs> you know, it only ever goes up if you, you listen to a lot of people. Um, and so we've seen some modest declines recently. Now, it shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, it's been in the making for some time now. It reflects a number of key factors. The first is clearly the macro potential regulation that's been introduced over the last few years and actually stepped up a little bit late last year. Um, that restriction of credit is, is very clearly flowing through. The second is what has been a historically long construction upswing in this country, and so supply is increasingly coming on stream. And the third really is, I think, you know, generally, as things start to turn, psychologically, um, buyers become a little bit more cautious, you know, they, they don't feel like they're missing out anymore, they, they're they a little bit more patient, the kind of demand's not as, you know, rampant as it was. And so it shouldn't surprise anyone that house prices have, have eased somewhat off some very elevated levels after a very long um, upswing. So our base case is for prices to fall further. Um, and we think this is a 
be, because of a number of factors, this could turn into a bit of a drawn out downturn um, in terms of housing. So what's your base case at the moment? So our base case is that prices at a national level probably decline um, throughout much of 19 and into 2020. And we have made some assumptions around a potential change of government and what that might do as well, given some of the announced policies. I was going to ask you about this shortly. Yes. For uh, some of the announced policies. And, and look, we, we caveat it heavily by saying the policies that are announced now, potentially six months out from an election, could change mm. quite significantly. Um, that's the nature of politics. And we know a number of the announcements that the opposition party, Labor, have put out have already shifted. So, you know, this is all, I think, best best sort of um, assumed type of scenario. And just to, just to, you know, these are, um, I'm sure all of our uh, listeners are familiar with this, but it's the removal of negative gearing on new in, uh, investment pro- properties and then the halving of the capital uh, gains discount. Um, so, uh, sorry, did I say that correctly? Capital gains discount. Um, so, um, now the really interesting thing about this was that policy was announced back in 2016 mm-hmm. um, when... Things housing was extremely absolutely, housing, and yeah. so you know, it's not a great time of the cycle to be introducing those types of measures. Um, you know, if they are introduced and they, you know, are, are introduced first of July next year, let's assume start of the next fiscal year, then absolutely, it, it must be a bit more of a headwind to um, what will already be a housing market that is moderating, continuing to moderate in terms of house prices. Um, and as um, construction, uh, that pipeline starts to wane. So look, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exact numbers. As economists, we make a whole bunch of assumptions and this is is based that. So our view that house prices continue to decline, um, we think peak to trough is probably a decline of about 15% this cycle. Um, so again, you know, bear in mind that's after a very decent 50, 55% run up. Um, we think there are a number of challenges and we've, we've tried to capture that in the numbers. I gather with your forecast as well, given that nationwide is 15%, that it implies a slightly larger fall in Sydney and Melbourne given the size of those markets Look, and, and less declines, I uh, know, elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a difficult thing with housing and it's not unique to Australia, right, or everywhere else. It's not a homogeneous market. We know there's going to be pockets and we know already there are pockets of much greater stress where house prices are down double digit. Um, and so it, it's not one market. And, and yes, I think um, it, it is quite possible that you'll see some areas where the declines are larger, others clearly not. Um, at the end of the day, I think we're quite mindful and, and we do stress that the underlying fundamentals are reasonable for the Australian economy. You know, population growth, while it has come off, um, is still pretty decent around one and a half percent, slightly higher. It's around the long run average. It's, you know, it's half a percent above um, the OECD average. It's a full percentage point above the G7 average. I mean, population growth is is it's going to be pretty important here. Rates are low, obviously, still relatively um, by historic standards, and the labour market's in reasonable shape. There is nothing in our view that suggests a substantial big correction nationally in terms of house prices. Uh, and, um, you know, there are other, other fundamentals there. So um, uh, commodity prices have been very uh, strong, um, and... Um, they also with the level that the Australian dollar is at, like tourism has really gotten a, a good boost um, in the last year. 
Um, and then, you know, you think about like the demand for education services as well, um, which, you know, like marketing to these vast markets in, in, in India and China. And you only have to take a small slice of those to make it sort of have a fairly significant impact on, you know, intake. Um, yeah, from, I mean, the Aussie dollar, I think, is doing, you know, what you'd hope it would do in, in an environment Come whereby, <laughs> yeah, you know, whereby, um, it, you know, it acts as that, that automatic stabiliser. Um, I think what's been more interesting is it's taken, you know, to the last couple of months for the Aussie dollar actually to get down to these levels. It was proving remarkably resilient early in the year, you know, despite interest rate differentials that were working massively against it. Um, but I think it's very much been the combination of this mar concern or escalating concern about global growth and China tariffs, you know, how it impacts a small open economy like Australia, um, combined with the ongoing rate differential story that, that's kind of moved at this leg lower. So um, I don't think, I, I imagine um, the Reserve Bank's probably pretty happy with where the currency is. Um, it will absolutely, uh, you know, lend a bit of a boost to, to key exports um, and, and that's what it should be doing in this environment. Uh, just on the housing uh, question very quickly, I think one of the really interesting things about the features of, of, of Labour's position now on on, uh, on housing is depending on the context in which it was made, if they had to get to that point where they had to reverse that policy or make a change to it or say, we still believe the fundamentals of this, but now is not the right time to do it. I think it'd be one of those rare occasions where people would, you know, potentially be applauding a U-turn in a, a policy U-turn. We love by, negative gearing. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. But I, um, the, just in terms of other things that might come into play here, um, the the outlier situation that say that there's some external shock, further deterioration in Europe, further slowdown in in China. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's, that has happened uh, maybe this year uh, in terms of the picture for the RBA, who keep telling us, and I think they've been extremely consistent in this and saying that the next move is likely to be up rather than down. Um, but do you think that the success of Macro Pro, the slowdown and rollover in, in house price growth has put them into a better position where if they needed to, um, they, there is less risk associated the risk that was associated with a cut um, 12 months ago is, is potentially now mitigated. Possibly. I don't think a weak housing market, either from a prices perspective or a construction perspective, would get the Reserve Bank to cut. Um, I think it would have to be a lot more than that. We know they don't want to cut. The, you know, they say it publicly. Um, they're pretty adamant about it, and hence the comment, the next move is up. I think that is very much um, what they want to do. Um, we are a long way from their estimates are neutral. We know they're uncomfortable down here. 1.5% was never calibrated for an economy that's in reasonable shape and a global backdrop that's pretty okay as well. Um, I don't think housing is what would get them to cut. What will get them to cut or get the market speculating about a cut is the global backdrop for whatever reasons. History shows pretty clearly, you know, a weaker Australian economy, it's the external shock that pushes Australia into you know, a much weaker growth period. Um, and so there are domestic challenges, absolutely. Housing is one of them. It has implications for consumption, a big part of growth. Um, but I think, I, I don't think that's what would cause the bank to, to lower rates. I think um, it would be very reluctant to do so on 
on those types of grounds, particularly given all the hard work around macro pru, I think it would send somewhat conflicting messages. Um, I think it would really come from the global backdrop. And this is where we struggle a little bit. We have a rate two hikes in our profile at the back end of 19, first quarter. I was just going to ask, yeah, so end of 19? End of 19 and first quarter of 2020. But the message from us is very clear to clients. The longer the Reserve Bank stays on hold, the less sure we are which direction the next move is because Mm. by the second half of 2020, the global economy, you know, we're not really sure what it's going to look like. The odds are it's not going to look as strong as it does now. Absolutely, some of the factors that you talk about, what if China weakens more? What if the EM complex is is struggling? Um, it, it, it's hard to know. And so we're very mindful. Um, it, it's the global story that matters a lot for the Reserve Bank. Um, and if you overlay what might still be a pretty soft housing market and likely weaker consumer... You know, will will the banks still lift around that time? Yeah, I've been discussing this for a long time that the RBA may run the risk of running out of time uh, to go and start normalising policy, given what could potentially happen in the rest of the world. As for the housing market uh, as a trigger for a cut, I don't think the housing market per se is going to be the uh, one of the, the reasons to do it. But yeah, it not has, prices, but the knock-on effect. Yeah, yeah, but if it has a spillover effect, particularly into the labour market, yeah. because if you look at all the uh, the forecasts that have been put out by the RBA and all the optimistic overtones, it's all centred around the linchpin is the labour market. The labour market will continue to go and hum along nicely and strengthen gradually going boost wages, lower unemployment. Uh, you will start seeing uh, household spending hopefully lift up and then eventually at some point inflation. Uh, if somehow that, uh, and given the, the, the kind of vulnerable position we're in in terms of where our household savings ratio is at the moment, weak wage growth, if people suddenly look at their balance sheet and say, gee, my house, I'm a Sydney side, my house has just gone and fallen uh, 10% uh, over the last year and they start shutting their wallets and then that obviously has flow-on effects. To me, I think that's definitely a catalyst where the RBA could consider. And if they are worried about Australians going and reigniting the housing market by rushing to the bank to go and get loans and everything <laughs> else, I, I, up, yeah. I suspect that they should go and have faith in what MacroPro has done because those same conditions were in place when they were introduced and look what MacroPro has done. It has gone and cooled the housing market single-handedly with that. You know, any official rate increase, we've seen a few outer cycles, but uh, have faith that Australians aren't going to go back to that same behaviour again. I think that people are already concerned that they've got enough debt and they don't want to go and add on to more of that uh, given the current circumstances. This leads me beautifully into something else that I, uh, I wanted to raise, which is that the consumption outlook, right? So the RBA talks about this uh, almost every month, I think, um, about um, the consumption outlook remaining, uh, uncertainty around the household consumption outlook remaining a, a risk factor in the economy. Uh, one of the things that your uh, research, uh, Sulin, pointed out was that, that, you know, potential. So this broader conversation about consumption, but one of the factors is the removal of excess, the proposed removal of excess franking credits uh, in Labour's policy, So, uh, which I think is a policy that they're unlikely to reverse um, at this stage, at least relative to, to, to the other changes to negative gearing and, uh, and capital gains tax. Um, but uh, your modelling sees um, that household consumption potentially being affected by 0.1 to 0.2% a year, which is interesting when consumption is so fragile, uh, the, the, uh, the outlook for consumption is so fragile when you've got this reduced wealth effects coming from the house prices sure. and a couple of other things. So maybe you can expand on that a little bit. So again, I think it's important to put it into context. Household consumption's actually proved remarkably resilient um, over the, 
most of 2018 and 2017 as well. So household consumption, like most developed countries, 55, 60% of GDP, it's pretty important here. 2.7% 2017, probably running closer to 3% first half of this year. It's part of the reason we actually upgraded our 2018 GDP forecast to three and a quarter. So above trend, pretty decent all round. And it was really the resilience in households. Now, you can take the the kind of bearish view and argue, okay, well, they clearly weren't saving as much. Um, You know, it had to have come from that. Um, It was partly because, you know, there's ongoing residential construction, there's durable consumption going on, and house prices really haven't rolled over that much. That's the kind of probably optimistic view, I think. Um, But to be fair, we'll put our hands up and say, we thought the consumer would be weaker by this point in the cycle, and yet it's proved fairly resilient. So we've tended to push out our forecasts for a softer consumer. We do think the outlook is challenging. um, And, you know, we we think the odds are that consumption, household consumption moderates to about 2%, maybe slightly below in Mm. 2019. Now that reflects... um, you know, clearly the risk that households start to save from a precautionary perspective, um, that clearly wages growth is pretty modest. We know there's generally a squeeze going on in disposable income, not as probably as significant as, as as much as we saw in 17 where utility prices really spiked. But nevertheless, we know that there are key baskets of the CPI that are non-discretionary and rising pretty fast. So, What about the rest of the growth mix then on top of that, right? So... In terms of overall growth? Yeah, yeah. So where growth is coming from is the export side, the public spending side, and a little bit of private business investment. And, and you know, they're all pretty decent and there are bright spots in the Australian economy. There is no doubt. Um, and like I said, consumption's actually held up pretty well all round. But when we go forward, the odds are growth will moderate a little bit as consumption um, moderates and housing turns into a drag on activity. What will offset that is this ongoing going uh, growth that's happening in exports, particularly the LNG side, a lot of public spending. Let's face it, you know, we've got some elections coming up too. There'll be even more of that. Mm. Um, And a little bit of business investment. So it's not a complete doom and gloom picture in Australia. And I I think that's really important to point out. You know, we're going to record three and a quarter this year, probably not far from three next year. There are headwinds, yes. And um, I think we are all a bit concerned about housing and consumption. And there is some uncertainty, but both have been pretty resilient so far. Um, but yes, we do think there are headwinds for ha- uh, for consumption and, you know, the potential changes to excessive franking credits kind so, of are as another one to throw in. One of the things you mentioned, just um, like the fiscal side um, that, you know, remarkably, um, and it looks like just in time, um, uh, the, you know, just in time to for when it might when it looks like it may be needed yeah. um the budget suddenly looks almost balanced yes um so i think it was um running the last data we saw showed it like running five billion dollars ahead yeah um so december um with the mid-year um, budget update is going to be really interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a cyclical recovery in revenue. You know, commodity prices have been reasonably elevated. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not structural. Although, to be fair, um, expenditure as a percentage of GDP has been pretty stable. So there have been some efforts on that front. 
in all fairness. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of both, but, but there definitely is a bit of a cyclical uplift here. And yeah, absolutely, you know, come Maifo time, um, we could be looking at a, the surplus will be well within sight. Um, we're going into some a pretty tight election. May not be quite as strong on the other side. It'll, it'll be tight. Uh, um, it'll be tight in December, and then we'll see where we get to by the time you know, May rolls around. Yeah. But look, if there is some moderation, and if we get hit by external shock, that's that was that's the whole aim of trying to get your budget back into surplus. Yeah, Dave. Uh, the commodity prices really have been uh, very strong. Yes, uh, you name it. All of the. Uh, all, everyone seems to want it and prices are going to the roof. You know, iron ores, uh, no, multi-month or uh, multi-year highs, depending on what grade you're looking at. Uh, coke and coal prices, absolutely flying. Uh, spot LNG, uh, you know, getting a tailwind from, uh, from the crude oil price. Uh, you put all those in together and what you said, the Aussie dollar sitting at 70 cents and all these uh, commodities are pricing US dollar terms. Mm. No, don't be surprised we get an earlier uh, earlier budget uh, surplus than, uh, than what is currently anticipated because you throw in what's going on with the labour market and hiring, I know the number of you know, people who are getting jobs, forgetting that they, uh, know they're probably unlikely to go and see the, uh, the, the wage growth goals hit. But uh, everything at the moment is working towards, you no know, just revenues churning in. Yeah. But uh, you're exactly right. I suspect it if things do look a little bit, uh, you know, tedious in the domestic economy, that by the time May next year rolls around, there'll be uh, some sweetness for households there. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, that you know, they'll have room. I think, I mean, the, the improvement is so good. And I think it's interesting that you point out, I think very rightly, Sulin, that it, it is cyclical. So, you know, if you want to bake in income tax cuts, um, et cetera, that is, you're taking on the cycle there, right? So You are, but I think our view around income tax cuts is it's important from a medium-term uh, productivity perspective and a medium-term um, growth potential perspective because it's about competitiveness. And, you know, the over-reliance on income tax cuts for, for the revenue base in Australia um, is one that you know, quite often doesn't get addressed as much as it should in the public debate. And, you know, when you look at um, cuts that are going on globally in income taxes, when you look at um, globally the lifts that we see in um, the equivalence of GST, it's about changing your mix of revenue um, and making sure that, you know, your, your income tax system's competitive. Um, that's what's important in terms of uh, workforce participation. It's important in terms of retention of skills in Australia. Um, I, I think it's important over the medium term. But yes, it is costly to budget, there's no doubt. Very small changes to thresholds, marginal rates, cost billions. billions so and billions it's, of dollars, it's yeah. short term, absolutely, it's a hit to budget. Short term, like the electoral, uh, electoral cycle, which is the half the problem, I think, uh, in a lot of these decisions are made with the mind that you know, we've got basically one year to go and have a honeymoon, one year to go and try and get any policy through, then one year to go and prepare for the next election, which I think leads to a bit of this scenario where you're going offer carrots that may not necessarily be good for the long run budget position. Uh, yeah, I do think it's really interesting. And I think at a political level, um, this is just a bit of commentary, I suppose, or observation, but that um, households have really, really been doing it tough um, for a long time now. These costs of essentials, you know, the RBA pu publishes this um, th this research on, uh, you know, how this over the last decade, essentials, particularly utilities, have been chewing up more um, of um, household cash flows. So, um, and I think that just speaks to, you know, I think very interesting this year. Um, we've talked before on the show on how more people are cancelling, cancelling. So there's a reduction in the number of people who are covered by private health insurance at a time when 
we've got population growth at the strength that it is. Um, and then also um, car sales um, this year so far uh, often used as a sort of proxy for forward-looking growth um, and the health of the, the confidence of the consumer. Um, pretty severe contractions uh, in car sales, like we're talking several percent uh, here. So, and I think that just speaks to um, uh, the availability of, of, of people's money to make uh, discretionary purchases, right? So, um, and then when you think about what does that mean at a political level, well, people are having their choices restricted. Um, so people, for a politician, this is about, I can't, my lifestyle isn't improving. Um, I'm not getting ahead. Um, what are you, how are you going to help me and my family uh, improve our lifestyle? Um, and I think with the, um, the, the budget getting to the point where it is, you know, again, Australia's miracle economy, um, finally, you know, just it all coming together, um, you know, the lucky country um, to a point where politicians are in a position to be able to now start thinking about, well, what are our options here um, in a way that something that might provide some temporary relief. There are certainly some policy options that they could look at there. Um, but as we talked about, there are also maybe potentially some medium-term reductions um, uh, in income tax um, over there. I just want to ask you quickly, um, part of this picture is the Australian dollar, which we've touched on a little bit um, already. Um, uh, how do you see the Australian dollar playing out between now and the end of the year? Um, so we've had a target on the Aussie dollar against the US at 70 cents by the end of 2018. And we've had that forecast for a while. Uh, I don't. I, I think there's probably a little bit of downside risk to that. Um, look, it partly depends on what happens with the Chinese currency. It's clearly been weakening. There seems to be a bit of a line in the do sand you, drawn. Do you think they're willing to go past seven? Look, I think eventually it will, but it's a question of it being managed. I mean, you know, they don't want it gapping through their, you know, they're worried clearly about capital flights. So it's part of the broader toolkit in terms of measures to underpin and support the Chinese economy. So I suspect it will at some point, but in a managed and gradual fashion, it's not in anyone's interest for it to, to move sharply. You know, that's going to keep a bit of pressure on the Aussie dollar. So, you know, a, a Fed that keeps tightening, RBA on hold, um, uncertainty about the outlook for China and Chinese growth, you know, some potential further weakness at some point in the one. It does suggest some further downside to the Aussie dollar, so our 70 cents could be a bit conservative. My only caveat on that, and, you know, I have to have caveats because I'm an <laughs> economist, um, is that the market is positioned very short and has been yeah. for a long time. Um, and every investor you speak to, whether it's real money, fast money, whatever, they're, you know, they're all short the Aussie. So it will squeeze at times is, is my best guess. Right. It's not heading south, you know, quickly. It will squeeze up at points, but the bias would be tend to, would be to sell into any rallies. Um, so that that's kind of where we see the currency. What do you think, Dave? Status quo remains in place, firm commodity prices, but uh, a bit of a softening in the global economy. I see the Aussie bottoming around about 68 and a half. I think that was where the lows were in, uh, in early 2016. Um, if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, particularly in the Chinese economy, uh, it will be sub 60 cents very quickly. Okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, our guest this week on the show has been Sue Lin Ong, Managing Director, Chief Economist and Head of Australian Research at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Sue Lin has had a really remarkable uh, career in financial markets, spent some time in Hong Kong, uh, uh, and um, has been uh, in a lot of places, and a really fascinating uh, 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 
swathe of research that you publish. Um, and we're delighted to, to finally have got you on the show. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, now don't forget, uh, 27th of November at the Ivy in Sydney. Come and join us, uh, drinks, canapes, and talk about economics and markets for the whole evening with a, a bunch of uh, really interesting people. Dave, looking forward to it? I think so. It's uh, my mum's birthday, so I can't forget it. And uh, I'm sorry, mum, in advance. Uh oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Mrs. Scott. Um, okay. Uh, you can find those tickets, by the way, um, uh, on Humanitics and uh, search for Devils and Details on there and find it easy. The tickets are 50 bucks. Um, or you can find a link at the top of my Twitter profile. Okay, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. Um, we're all on Twitter individually. It's myself, Paul Colgan, and David Scott. Uh, and thanks again to our guest, Su Lin Ong from RBC Capital Markets. Um, you can find the show on iTunes, where you can rate us, leave us a review, or search Devils and Details on your podcasting platform of choice. We will catch you next time.